Good morning. Good morning to everyone in the video venue who's uh, watching us. Welcome to uh, everyone who's also watching online. Good morning to Pastor Chris, who is watching us online as well. Uh, so make sure that you guys are very involved and engaged today, just to uh, go ahead and throw that out there. Well, as Johnette said, we are continuing our Dear Church series this weekend. Uh, we're going to be looking at the third church on the list of seven letters to seven churches from Revelation 2 and 3. So we're going to be looking at the church in Pergamum. But before we do any of that, before we turn to Revelation, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. One of the men in our church stopped me before this service and reminded me that we're actually supposed to call it 2 Corinthians now. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, what we see here is, I believe, the foundational problem for the church in Pergamum. And so that's kind of a spoiler alert. Last week we looked at the church in Smyrna, and we know that it was a church where Jesus had nothing negative to say about it. We know that they were experiencing persecution, but because of how they were handling it, um, God had nothing but positive commendation for them. That is not the case for the church in Pergamum. And in fact, I believe what the problem for the church in Pergamum is, is also a problem for many churches today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that my, my dad and mom are out of town this weekend. They're in, in Texas visiting some friends and some family. Uh, he will be back next weekend as we continue our series and we look at the church in Thyatira, so you don't need to worry about that. But he is away getting some much needed rest right now. So uh, you can just follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, 14 through 16, uh, before we move on. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, often, when we hear this passage or when people think about these words, we think about them in relation to marriage. Um, you've probably heard before the, the sentiment that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. You know, they, they should not be unequally yoked. And while I would say there's certainly a weight to that, more broadly... What Paul is teaching is that Christians and non-Christians should not be, you know, joined together in things that are spiritual. There's no way for God to be glorified when that takes place. And that might sound weird, but this is why we see references to the impossible mixtures of righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, which is a name for Satan. Well, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to, you know, move away from non-Christians or not associate with non-Christians or anything like that. That would defeat the entire purpose of our call to serve and our call to love and our call to witness on this earth. What it does mean is that when it comes to spiritual things, there needs to be a distinction between the way believers live and the way non-believers live. So Christians and non-Christians, you know, we'll have the same jobs, we'll have the same business associates, we'll work in the same areas, we'll have the same hobbies, we'll cheer for the same sports teams, maybe even agree on the same politics. But at some point, there needs to be a separation that is 
evident. And I believe it's this lack of separation for many at the church in Pergamum is the underlying issue for everything negative Jesus has to say. Go ahead and flip over to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I want you to keep all of that in the back of your mind because I believe it's important groundwork for us to fully appreciate the words Jesus has for this church and how they apply to our lives as well. When you get to Revelation 2, verse 12, would you please stand with me wherever you are for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start reading in verse 12 and go all the way down to verse 17. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. In one of my resources for this passage, there was a tagline for the church in Pergamum, and it was simply labeled, The Worldly Church. The Worldly Church. I think that's the case because it's the church that compromised. And we're going to be talking a lot about that this morning. Now, I realize that in our world today, there is a reality when it comes to compromise. When it comes to things that don't have eternal value, sometimes this is just the way things are. Um, Anyone who's going out to lunch after church will probably have to come to some kind of compromise when you decide where you want to go eat. Uh, I heard the story of the family who was riding in the car together, and they're all four of them, the husband, the wife, and the two kids are just arguing about where they're going to go. I want Mexican. I want Italian. I want a cheeseburger. And finally, the dad had had enough, and he quieted everybody, and he said, we're just going to have to compromise. One of the kids leaned over to the other one and said, what does compromise mean? The kid said, it means we're going to go where mom wants to go. It's not always bad. Sometimes it's just the way things are. But when it comes to things that are not of this world, when it comes to things that have eternal value and that Jesus speaks to specifically, a willingness to compromise becomes an issue. Before we start to work our way through this letter, there are a couple things that I want to point out to you. First, I want to talk about the city of Pergamum itself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I want to do it just to give you some context so that you can appreciate this a little bit more. The city was located about 100 miles north of Ephesus with Smyrna located in the middle. And by the time John received his vision from God and wrote the letter of Revelation, 
It had been the capital of Asia Minor for, Asia Minor for about 250 years. It had a, a huge library. It was second only to the one in Alexandria, if you've ever heard of that before. And because of this, the city was labeled as one of those, you know, centers for learning and culture in the world, which, for whatever reason, seems to be a red flag when it comes to how Christians are viewed and treated there. Like so many cities in that time, it was a center for worship of false gods. But the real issue at Pergamum was the cult of emperor worship. Now, that's what we talked about last week when we talked about the church in Smyrna. It was the main reason the church there was experiencing so much persecution. There was one day a year when everyone was required to offer sacrifices to the emperor, and the Christians in Smyrna wouldn't do it. It was the reason that they were experiencing what they were. Now, as far as Pergamum was concerned, they loved emperor worship. They built the first temple that we know of devoted to emperor worship. This was a a distinguishing part of their city. It It was what gave them pride. It was one of the things that set them apart from other places and, you know, in their minds made them better. So that's a little bit about the city. The second thing that I want to mention briefly is to talk about the way Jesus begins his letter to this church. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Well, this is a reference to the Bible, God's word. And the nature of a sharp, double-edged sword is that there is no dull or weak side. But the main thing you need to understand about this introduction is that it is not a positive one. It's not a positive way to start the letter. As I said, we just left the church last week that was coming Um, off of, you know, persecution, but because of that, Jesus has nothing negative, nothing bad to say about what they're doing and how they're living. And now, we begin a letter to a church where a coming judgment, a threat of judgment is evident from the very start. It sets the tone for everything else that Jesus has to say, and so I don't want you to miss that. It's definitely an eye-opening statement for the believers in Pergamum. Well, let's start to work our way through this text as we've done each week. So write this down next to number one in your handout, the commendation. This is the first thing that we see. We're just going to go from start to finish. So verse 13 says this. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, this is quite a commendation. I know that, you know, we just talked about the introduction and how there is this threat of judgment. And we know, because we read the letter, that there's more negative to come. But I don't want to overlook or belittle the impact of what Jesus has to say here. You know, the first thing he says, and he says it in the beginning and the end of this verse, is that they live where Satan has his throne. You know, this is where Satan lives. And we know that Satan is the ruler of this present world. So what does this mean? Well, there are a number of possibilities. In the city of Pergamum, there was this this idol, this throne uh, to Zeus. And it was literally this giant throne, a giant chair, you know, for Zeus to sit in. And so it doesn't take much imagination to, to look at that and know about that and think about the way Jesus describes this city. There was also a temple to the god Asclepius. 
He was believed to be the god of medicine. His staff was intertwined with a snake. And it's the reason that even today the medical symbol is a snake or snakes coiled around a staff, in case you've ever wondered about that. People would literally go and spend the night in his temple, sleeping on the ground, so that the snakes who lived there, because snakes had free reign in the temple, could touch them and slither over them, and by doing that, they would be healed of whatever they were dealing with. Uh, that, just, that just makes me feel weird uh, to talk about. It, it's had that effect on me, kind of that cold chill down my spine in every service. I mean, I, I don't know what I would be going through in my life, and I don't want to be dismissive to people who deal with, with illnesses, but it's like, at what point do I think, you know what, this is probably the best thing for me to do? I need to spend the night in this temple... And hope that the snakes crawl over me, slither over me. Oh, that's just quite an image there. And also, as I mentioned before, they're huge into emperor worship. Uh, so here's the deal. It could, be, it could be one of these reasons. It could be all of these reasons. There is no shortage of evil to pick from in the city of Pergamum when you think about why Jesus says what he does about this place. And so in the middle of all this, you have the church, you have the believers, and they are hanging on. Even though they're surrounded by constant threats, Jesus says they remain true to his name. And the truth is, in Pergamum, maybe compared to other places, it's not just threats. Because we know that one of their uh, members has actually been killed because of his faith. Nothing is known for certain about this man, Antipas, outside of this verse. He's probably a leader in the church. It was probably why he was killed. Tradition says that he was roasted to death inside of a brass bull. I think it's a big deal for Jesus to refer to him as my faithful witness. That is quite a compliment. And I want to say all of this because we do. We see a lot of good here. We see a lot of faithfulness here. We see the reality of of persecution in their lives, and we know that they are hanging on. But we also know that it doesn't end there. So write this down next to number two, the concern. The concern. There are really two things, you know, stated things that Jesus says, but they're huge, and they have a ripple effect throughout the church because of the way that people handled them. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, if the Nicolaitans sounds familiar, it's because we talked about them, we read about them in the first letter to the first church, the church in Ephesus. We know that that was the church that had lost its first love, but one of the commendations Jesus says about them is that they hated the practice of the Nicolaitans just like Jesus hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. And for Jesus to hate anything, it's a big deal. We need to not take it lightly. So I want to look at these two things really quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time on either of them, but I want want us to get a a better understanding of just what it was, just what the temptation and difficulties were that this church faced. So the first one 
is the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Numbers from the Old Testament, probably one of the more popular books of the Bible, um, then this name sounds familiar. Balaam was essentially a prophet for hire. We see the main part of his story in Numbers 22 through 25. Balak was the king of Moab, and he was afraid of Israel. He was afraid of Israel. So he hired Balaam to place a curse on them. But whenever Balaam would try to do that, it it just wouldn't work. I don't know any other way to describe it. He would open his mouth to speak, and he would simply speak blessings on God's people. And it's because God had determined to bless his people, no matter what. And in fact, the reason that most people recognize the name of Balaam has nothing to do with prophecy, but it's because of his encounter with an angel while he's riding his donkey. Basically, he's going down the road one day, and he's on his donkey, and an angel of the Lord is in front of him, and the angel is ready to kill him. Now, he doesn't see the angel. He doesn't know what's going on, but somehow his donkey does. So the donkey won't move forward, and Balaam doesn't understand why, so he starts to to whip and beat the poor animal until finally the donkey looks at him and speaks audibly and tells him just what it is that's going on and just why he won't move. Now, I'm sure that if my dad were preaching this morning, there would be a joke in here somewhere. But since he isn't, we're just going to have to think about what might have been and then move on. But why is this an issue? You know, we're talking about Balaam. I just told you that he couldn't, he couldn't do what he was hired to do. He, he couldn't curse God's people, you know. So why, why bring him up as an example? Well, even though he couldn't curse God's people, he was able to lead them astray through false teaching. He was instrumental in corrupting the people of Israel by their eating of food sacrificed to idols, by committing acts of immorality, and by using the Moabite women to lure the Israelite men into idolatry. The short answer is to say that he was able to get the people of God to do all of the sinful things that the world around them were doing. They were able to blend in with the culture. And this is what was happening to some at the church in Pergamum. They were getting wrapped up in the world around them. You know, I I said that this this is a place that's considered a center for learning and for culture, and I'm sure there were were great opportunities there. You know, things in Pergamum to do that you couldn't do anywhere else. Things they had there that there there were nowhere else in the entire world. And the people were getting wrapped up in it and they were actively engaging in all of the sinful practices that went along with these opportunities. The second big, you know, kind of obvious thing that Jesus says has to do with the Nicolaitans and You know, we're not going to spend hardly any time on them because we talked about them in the first letter. But the big thing as far as they're concerned is that they uh, loved to abuse Christian liberty. And basically what that meant is that they taught that people could do just about whatever they wanted. But because Jesus had died for them, it was fine. It was a terrible corruption of the grace that God offers. This idea that You know, it doesn't matter what you do because Jesus has died for you. I'm not belittling grace at all when I say this because it's an abuse that we should not do in our lives, and that's what they were teaching. So, here it is. It's what we need to understand. Based on what Jesus writes, when we look at this letter, when we look at the other letters even to the other churches, 
we believe that a majority of the Christians in Pergamum, in fact, they did not fall in line with these teachings. A majority of the believers in Pergamum, you know, they didn't, they didn't follow Balaam. They didn't follow the Nicolaitans. They, they did what they were supposed to do. They were loyal to Jesus. They didn't, they didn't participate in sinful activities. And even when the authorities killed one of their own, it didn't change what they believed. And it didn't change how they lived. So what's the big problem? Well, the main problem for the church comes because even though a majority of the people didn't do that, personally commit those sins, they tolerated the people in the church who did. This is that bigger concern. This is that underlying issue that I believe we see here. I believe it's where so much disapproval from Jesus comes from. I mean, think about this for a moment. Think about, think about this church in Pergamum and, and the other two letters to the other two churches we've looked at so far. Because I think that what we see here is a progressive nature. And I'm not saying that you can do this with all seven letters to all seven churches, but I think it's, it's fairly obvious here because they faced the same obstacles, the, the same trials, the same realities as the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna. We know that they all have to deal with false gods and, and worshiping false gods in this day and age. We know that the church in Ephesus and the church in Pergamum both deal with the Nicolaitans. The church in Ephesus hates them, what they believe, but the church in Pergamum doesn't really seem to have a problem with them. We know that there is emperor worship involved, especially in Smyrna and in Pergamum. Yet, unlike Smyrna, our church today is not a church, you know, refined by fire. It's not purified. My dad talked about how when persecution comes, one of the things that happens is it gets rid of all the people who don't really believe because they're not going to sit through that. Even though Pergamum has seen someone killed because of their faith, they're not the persecuted church. So what are they? Well, I go back to that tagline that I mentioned already today. They're the worldly church. They're the compromising church. They seem to be the church that just doesn't want to make waves. And I hope, I hope you understand that when I say this, and I say it negatively, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm saying that they should strive to be the antagonistic church. You know, I, I don't think that, that any of us should, should hope that, you know, our tagline would be something like, well, that's the hostile church. But the reality is, sometimes you make waves in this world simply by refusing to move, even if you don't necessarily do anything. A rock in a stream is going to make waves as the water moves around it simply because it's grounded. Our faith needs to be grounded. Our church needs to be grounded. It should not go with the flow and shift with the sands. How wrong is it to, to participate in these things that you know profane God's name and then to show up at church and to try to worship him like nothing is different or wrong in your life. 
And I don't want you to think that I'm being too hard on these people because here's the reality. When it comes to the people who follow the teaching of Balaam, when it comes to the people who, you know, agree with the teachings of the Nicolaitans, these aren't men and women who come to church on, you know, Saturday night or Sunday morning after they've made a mistake and and they come because they know they need grace. They know they need forgiveness. They don't come with humility in their hearts looking for change. These are people who have decided that it's okay to live this way. They're brazen about that fact and there's nothing that you or anyone can do about it. And the problem with the church in Pergamum is that no one there did anything about it. And that's the concern. That's the problem. And so they just ate away at themselves from the inside because of this false teaching. Write this down next to number three, the council. He begins this letter by referencing the sword in his mouth, and we see it mentioned again here in verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, Jesus is basically telling them that if they don't step up as a church and do what needs to be done, he will. He will. And we live in a culture today that celebrates tolerance and celebrates compromise as things to be rewarded and and lauded but the truth is because of these attitudes at the church in Pergamum they faced judgment from God not commendation not reward judgment this is the ripple effect of sin remember when when he talks about repentance he's talking about a change in the mind that results in a change in the body you know the first thing that people needed to do was that they needed to let go of the false teachings that had corrupted them and when they let go of these false beliefs they would be able to change the way that they lived and they would be able to let go of this sinful lifestyle that they were leading and i want to kind of pause here for a moment and challenge you to really apply this to your own life what are the things that you struggle with what are the things that you believe what are the things that you justify in your own life when it comes to sin I mean sometimes people are are fooled sometimes people are tricked but honestly I think most of the time almost all of us know when we're doing something wrong we know when we're doing something the Bible Jesus you know tells us clearly not to I'm not so naive to think that it doesn't apply to our church. What do we need to let go of in the name of repentance so that we can experience genuine change inside and out? The people in the church who were sitting idly by while all of this took place, they needed to let go of their passive faith. They needed to have an active one. We keep going back to the introduction, you know, the double-edged sword. This comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Our faith, your faith, my faith, just like the word of God, needs to be living and active And so ask yourself that question this morning. Is my faith living and active? And what's your answer? 
If I asked the person next to you to answer for you, what would they say? Is your faith living and active? I want, I want to say, I feel like I need to say this again. We, talked, we started out reading that passage in, in 2 Corinthians, and we talked about, you know, we've been talking about compromise and, and tolerance and, you know, the need to, to call out sin and not let that be, you know, a, a, part of, a part of our church. But at the same time, please understand that I am not talking about any kind of, you know, separation from sin or sinners. That's, that's not really what we see. You know, church needs to be a place where sinners can come and know that they are loved just like sinners would come to Jesus and know that he loved them. But at the same time, the point is not to create what is simply a comfortable environment. Man, I hope you guys, I hope you guys on one level are comfortable when you come to church. I hope that it's not a miserable experience and that you just can't wait to get out of here. That's not the goal. But on a deeper level, the goal is change. The goal is change in people's hearts, change in people's lives because we are a church where the word of God is preached, where the word of God is shared, and where the word of God is lived out. You and me, we are the ones that are called to live out the word of God. You know, we do this gently. We do this graciously, but at the same time, we do it consistently so that people will be confronted with the reality of the sin in their lives so that they can do what, what Jesus told the church in Ephesus to do so that they can keep on remembering, keep on remembering their need for a Savior, keep on remembering my need for Jesus. And I'll just say this, I think oftentimes uh, kind of a red flag when it comes to whether or not we're living comfortable lives is, is if you come to church and you hear a message or you read a passage of scripture and the first thing that you think is, man, I wish so-and-so were here because they really need to hear this. And you know what? That might be true. They really might need to hear it. But when the first thing you think about is how the word of God applies to everyone else except for you, that's a problem. Write this down next to number four, the conclusion. The conclusion. Jesus begins the letter with a warning of judgment, but he ends it with encouragement. He reminds them of their responsibility to listen to what he has to say, to take it seriously. We see this over and over again. He who has an ear, let him hear. But then he also has promises to him who overcomes First, he says he'll give them some of the hidden manna. This is a reference to the way God fed his people when they were in the wilderness after they left Egypt, but before they entered the promised land. And I think it's a pretty incredible image because really what it means when Jesus promises hidden manna is Jesus promises them himself. I think John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51 uh, makes it pretty clear for us. He says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is all the blessings, all the goodness, all the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what he offers. That's what he wants us to experience. 
The second thing we see is that Jesus says he'll give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, there are no shortage of ideas when it comes to what this may or may not mean, but because of the time that it was written and the culture that it was written in, I think it's good for us to understand it uh, as part of, uh, or an, as an image of the Roman custom to give a white stone to the winner of an athletic event. The stones would be inscribed with the athlete's name on them, and it would be their ticket to the banquet celebration that took place after the competition. Multiple places in Scripture we see our Christian walk, our Christian life described as a race, and we know the importance of running that race in such a way as to win the prize. I think it's a great illustration for us. My dad has spoken the the first two weeks, the last two weeks, about two words that we need to always keep in mind when it comes to studying these churches, and I want to remind you of them this morning. The first one is historical. You know, we read this letter, and especially uh, because, you know, we want to think about what it means to us, and because we know that it's from the book of Revelation, uh, we might be tempted to overlook or, or not always think about the fact that it was a, a real place. The real historical church in Pergamum had these real issues. Antipas was really killed there. They had all these problems to overcome as they you know, tried to be believers in this evil place. The second word, though, is perennial. It's because all these letters have truths in them that apply to each and every church and each and every place all over the world throughout all of history. And it might not be the case for you this morning, but when I think about that and when I think about how these words apply to me and how these words apply to Mount Pleasant, it speaks a great deal to the way that I think of the church today. And I'm not trying to be negative. I realize that we've been talking about the church in Pergamum as the worldly church, and we've been talking about compromise. But I think it highlights such an issue that I see in a lot of churches because the truth is, the church in Pergamum, they were able to stand up to all of the evil and all of the, the, the persecution around them. So many of the believers there would not change what they did or how they acted or what they believed, even when they saw someone killed. But what they couldn't do was hold each other accountable. What they didn't do was help those within their own walls that needed it. Now, I don't want us to be that kind of church. I hope you don't want to be that kind of church. I don't want us to have an attitude of complacency. We can't let compromise lead to judgment. We need to recognize sin for what it is. We need to understand the danger that it carries. And we need to do everything that we can to help each other overcome it. So what does it mean? Well, on one hand, it means, yeah, we need to call out sin when we see sin. But I think more importantly and more difficultly, we need to be willing to repent ourselves. We need to be humble enough to think about what we need to do in our own lives. Where have we given in? Where have we justified our actions? Where have we fallen short? What part of our life do we still hold on to a little bit more than we should? Where are we still a little bit more worldly than Jesus wants us to be? 
Tyson can go ahead and come on up. I want to close our time together this morning with the familiar passage. I don't feel like we can talk about this uh, worldliness and, and compromise when it comes to church without reading some familiar words from the book of 1 John. You can just listen as I read them and then I'll go ahead and pray. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 